Uh, please turn with me to page 1232, which is the last penultimate book of the New Testament, the letter from Jude. There is only one chapter, and we're starting at verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is well, it's a simple title, this particular sermon. It's uh, We Persevere, God Preserves. It's even got alliteration. But within it lies one of the greatest tensions in the Christian faith, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Here, though, the question is focused on a particular facet of that tension. On the one hand, is it all down to us? to ensure that we um, stay on track to get ourselves uh, to heaven? Or is it God who keeps us so that we end up in the right place at the right time? The tension comes at the beginning and the end of this very short little letter of Jude, who, as you know, is the half-brother of Jesus. It crops up in verse 1 in the greeting to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept, or as the uh, old authorised version puts it, preserved by or in Christ Jesus. And just before the doxology at the end of the letter, we have in verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So in verse 1, we have God in Christ Jesus keeping us or guarding us or preserving us, which in effect is also repeated in the doxology of verse 24 itself. To him, doxology just means glory to God, to him who is able to keep you from falling or stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. In 1, verse 21, we have to keep ourselves, whereas in the other two verses, verses 1 and 24, God is said to keep us. In the former, it's down to human responsibility, whereas in the latter, it's down to divine sovereignty. So how do we harmonise these two seemingly contradictory positions? Well, Attempts to harmonise these two seemingly contradictions have a long history. And for much of that church history, though not all of it, fortunately, 
the sovereignty-responsibility tension has tended towards what's called reductionism. You reduce one side of the tension so that uh, it is subsumed within the other side. So if, for example, you favour the God-sovereignty side, you construct your theological system out of all the texts and arguments which support this important truth. And then, with this grid, you filter out evidence which could be taken to call some of your theological system into question. And this methodology is, of course, indistinguishable from the person who does the opposite, who first constructs his theological system out of all the texts and arguments which seem to support some form of human freedom, and who then filters out the passages which speak of God choosing us and predestining us until that particular proponent has safely diffused those texts by redefining them. The trouble with these one-sided approaches, as Don Carson points out, is that the solution moves so far from the biblical data that either the picture of God or the picture of man that you've created bears little resemblance to their portraits as assembled from the scriptural text as a whole themselves. In other words, the solution which you've created, whether you've veered in one direction or the other, doesn't match the picture given by biblical anthropology or biblical theology as a whole. It's not how scripture portrays either human nature or divine character. You've distorted the truth about both God and man in a quest to resolve this tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which are both true. And Carson's conclusion, which has been echoed down the centuries before him by what you might call the great ones, people like Charles Simeon, Charles Spurgeon, John Stott, Jim Packer, is that in Scripture, quote Carson, the tension is never resolved so that there is divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but no tension. Jim Packer, in his classic book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, writes, To our finite minds, of course, the thing is inexplicable. It sounds like a contradiction, and our first reaction is to complain that it's absurd. Well, like Spurgeon, Packer argues that these two great biblical truths must be held together. There is no need, he says, to reconcile friends. In the Bible, Packer says, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are friends, and they work together. And he cites, for example, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, 18th century evangelists, who between them changed the face of this country and the Americas in the 18th century. Although one of them tended to one direction and the other one tended to emphasise the other direction, they worked together. Now, let's have a look and see what Jude has to say 
that helps us understand the tension and to live it out. And let's use the two mentions of the verb keep as our twin foci. What we are to do and what is and what God is to do to ensure that we arrive in heaven. So verses 20 and 21, keep yourselves in God's love. That's the main clause with three participles, building, praying and waiting, which modify that, helping his readers limit the adverse influence of the false teachers. So building yourselves up in the most holy faith. You know, we are in the construction business, albeit a kind of self-build, if you like, though with a divine architect. Holy simply means utterly different from. Only Christianity, for example, believes in a God of absolute grace, as contrast to all other religions, which are merit-earning approaches to the divine. The faith, that means the scriptures. It means the faith delivered through the prophets and the apostles. A unique message that teaches and in its moral transformation in what it produces. Praying in the Holy Spirit. There is nothing particularly weird or esoteric in that. It's simply that when you become a Christian, you have adopted a Christian biblical framework of understanding life. And you discover through scripture the character and the plans and purposes of God. And you pray in accordance with his agenda rather than yours. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Eternal life comes in two parts, really. There is the part that is accessible now when we turn to Christ and embrace the forgiveness that he offers and we receive it and he enters our life and the eternal is then in us. There is now and then there is the full package, if you like, when the end of the world comes and Christ returns and there is judgment and there is a new creation. When, as Jesus said, paradise that was lost at the fall is re-established forever. Waiting reveals something of the perspective that Jude expects believers to have that this life is not all there is. It's not, to paraphrase the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, chasing the wind and pretending it's fun. No, life is not as vacuous as that. There is the return of Christ and the new creation for us to look forward to and everyone to kind of focus on and adjust their life accordingly. The Lord Jesus himself in uh, John 15, 9, on the night before he died, spoke of, I have loved you. And if we want to love him, then he said, abide in my love. If you, you, you abide in my love, if you keep my commandments. 
Now, these false teachers, in their flagrant disobedience, because they had a view that all that mattered was the kind of the spiritual, the kind of uh, what you think in your conscience, all that, that's all that matters. What you do with your body is irrelevant as far as they were concerned. And that, of course, meant that those false teachers had fallen out of love with God because they didn't live totally in conformity to God's character. Now, having that kind of eternal perspective and realising that we are going to be uh, having to um, give an account of ourselves does concentrate the mind very well and it makes us think about our own eternal destiny and realise that this life is the one life we've got and this life will determine where we end up forever. I can think that that thought kept me uh, in with Jesus when I was studying academic theology as an undergraduate 19-year-old. And because there were so many other Christian undergraduates who had a similar mindset that we were particularly active and, by the grace of God, effective in evangelism. That also helps, that divine perspective, that eternal perspective, helps keep us in Christ. Of course, I could see all around me that... uh, what you might call the evangelical faith of the Gospels, that that worked. And I could equally see that that a reductionist faith did not work, whether it was in the lives of fellow students or whether it was in the lives of some of those who taught us. Well, once saved by by the grace of God ourselves, we are 22 and 23 to show mercy to others. Um, literally, to the wobblers, those who doubt, those wavering between two minds, who are unsettled and unsure. And that's where a well-taught Christian who comes alongside them can, in fact, make a real difference. The people that he has in mind at this particular point are uh, not the ones who are stridently reinventing Christianity in some reduced form that suits their own particular uh, preferences and which, of course, becomes strongly antagonistic towards the original brand, if you like, the authentic version of the prophets and apostles. These people who are wobbling They require this more gentle approach. Save others, he says, by snatching them from the fire because they're playing with fire. Those who are getting close to the fire, the Bible would describe, of God's judgment. They're on the wrong path. They're in grave danger. They need to hear. They need to be rescued. And then he switches to another category of people. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, 
hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. See, David Williams reminded us last week when we looked at the prodigal son that there are, of course, two sons in the parable. The younger, who's the prodigal, and the elder, who displayed self-righteousness and was unmerciful. God has had mercy on us. We should have mercy on others. The flesh is just fallen human nature, our old self. The stained garments are quite literally messed your pants, really. Unpleasant, not what you want to think about on a Sunday morning before lunch. But, I mean, who would want to touch such things? You never know what you might catch. It is a right mess. An illustration of the the use of saying how we're stained and dirty, etc., Um, An illustration of how that changes comes from uh, Michael Green, who was once my vicar when I was an undergraduate. And he says, uh, there's this particular story about him. He arrived at a prison in East Asia. And because the East Asians rather like robes, he sort of turned up at the prison with a long white surplus. And um, he was introduced to the inmates, and they were all wearing dirty, rag-like prison uniforms. And Michael wondered how he could communicate the wonder of the cross and the resurrection to these men. And then he came up with a brilliant idea. He called one of the prisoners over from the crowd, and he had him take off his rag-like shirt. Michael then took off his surplus and he put on the man's rag-like shirt. And then he said that uh, all our righteousness is like filthy rags, as the Bible says. And Christ has taken them off and put put them on himself. And in return, he said, Christ has transferred his own righteousness to us, and made us clean before God. And then he put his own white surplus on the prisoner, and the place erupted. As many of those prisoners had become Christians, they could see what was happening, they knew what was happening, and they cheered. Now in uh, his commentary on Jude, that he wrote many, many years before his uh, visit to the East Asian prison, he writes, we should hate the sin and everything connected with it, but the sinner himself should be treated with mercy. And then finally, there is the doxology, verses 24 and 25. And to quote Michael Green in his commentary again, he writes, it is a dangerous thing to live for Christ in an atmosphere of false teachers and seductive morals. It's hazardous to try and rescue men for the gospel out of such an environment. So, should we withdraw, step back from the fire or the filth? Well, no. So what should we do? We should advance if we're strong in the Lord, in the one who is able to keep or guard us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence. It's as if we advance with a whole host of invisible angels around to protect us. Stronger and more numerous than the United States President's security detail, which we will see 
in about 10 days' time. Adversity, if we are strong in the Lord, is not going to get us. The Lord is protecting us. Yes, we may, must stay close to the Lord, but only he can guard us so that we do not stumble. That word stumble is only used on that one occasion in the New Testament. But the Greeks used it of a sure-footed horse who doesn't stumble and end up throwing its rider. Or of a good man who makes no moral lapses. Only the Lord can keep us from fatally falling in a world of disturbed thinking and laxed morals. And then present us without fault, literally spotless, like a white surplus, if you like. And with great joy, present us to the only God. Those of you who are my age or older, you'd have to be in that category, um, can remember when England won the World Cup. And many of you will have seen, even subsequently, when they've touched it up with colour, the film of Bobby Moore, the captain of England, number six, as he goes up the steps to the kind of uh, great platform where Her Majesty the Queen is to present the Jules Rimet trophy to England for winning. And the Queen, of course, would be immaculate, you know, gloves probably new on that day. Bobby Moore, after his slide tackles on the Wembley turf, covered in mud, his hands muddy, and he's trying desperately to get them clean on his rather short shorts. They had short shorts in those days. Uh, That's what he's trying to do, hopeless. He's going to end up and he is going to mess up Her Majesty's gloves. You know, it is just instinctive of us when we wish to kind of encounter somebody in that situation, that we want to try and clean ourselves up. It's the same as we encounter in our thinking the reality of God himself. Yeah, I don't want to face him. I don't want to face him. I'm not ready to face him. I know there are things which are kind of barriers between us. Well, it's only if we are in the Lord's team with his strip that we're seen as without fault and no blemishes as we approach God towards the end of our days and are presented to him as spotless based on the merits of Christ and then we experience exceeding joy and exceeding joy is a British understatement of translation. Access to God, our Saviour, is through Jesus Christ, our mediator. And the church praises God through Christ by saying, to God be glory. Glory means honour, the kind of honour that you would give to a visiting hero. Majesty, meaning greater than all. No religious leader in history has ever seriously claimed to be the creator of the universe. And yet Jesus did. Dominion. When I was at primary school, the atlases 
you know, each country was coloured. And uh, it was in the kind of very, well, it's in the uh, early 60s. Um, and, of course, a quarter of the atlas was covered a sort of pale red because it were, those countries were Her Majesty's dominions, the colonies, for good or ill. That's how you distinguished what was kind of British from French or Spanish. It means the extent of your reign. Well, of course, the extent of your rule, as far as Christ is concerned, is the entire earth. Authority, meaning who rules, and so has the ability to do anything he wants to do. His people acknowledge all that about him, who was before all ages, a hint that time only commences after he has kind of uh, ignited the Big Bang, now and forevermore, to infinity and beyond. And then it ends, Amen, which means truthfully. So, where are we left with divine sovereignty? In this case, God keeping us and human responsibility. In this case, us keeping ourselves in with him. Both have a part to play and there is no contradiction. God is divine, we are human, we're not the same categories. They may appear contradictions, but on closer scrutiny, such apparent contradictions can be resolved If you take the history of understanding light, you have Sir Isaac Newton utterly convinced that uh, light was made up of particles. And then later, physicists like Grimaldi and Fresnel and Young and Maxwell, that light is, they claimed, unequivocally a wave. And then Einstein pops up and he proves that light is a particle, a photon, and a flow of photons is a wave. What had been thought to be real contradictions, particles and waves, were in reality only apparent contradictions, what we call a paradox. Two truths apparently contradictory, but not really contradictory. Einstein discovered how that was the case with electricity. We, with God's preservation of us and our persevering in him, We don't know how they work together. But it's not contradictory, but rather a mystery. A mystery is something which has not been revealed to us. It is hidden. We don't know how it works. So this divine sovereignty and human responsibility is a mysterious paradox Two truths which may seem contradictory but aren't in fact contradictory, just that it's not yet been revealed how they work together. They are a hidden truth to us. We do not understand contradictions because they're nonsense. No one, not even God, can make sense of them. We do not understand mysterious paradoxes not because they are nonsense, but simply because the understanding of them has not yet been revealed to us. Maybe one day. So we have to accept 
a paradox for what it is and learn to live with it. Here's Jim Packer's advice. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp, complementary to each other. Be careful not to set them at loggerheads, nor make deductions from either that would cross across, that would, that would um, cut across the other. Use each within the limits of its own sphere of reference. Note that what connections exist between the two truths and their two frames of reference, and teach yourself to think of reality in a way that provides for their peaceful coexistence, remembering that reality itself, how we find life in practice, actually contains them both. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you promised to preserve us who have put our trust in you, and you have promised also to energize us through your word and spirit to enable us to live up to being in you and not being adrift from you. May we hold on to these two great truths in our lives, we pray. Amen.